1: On an autumn evening in 1879, just outside of San Antonio, Texas, a 19-year-old cowhand by the name of Jeff Smith stood beside the big top of a visiting circus. As the sun began to set and the amusements wound down, Smith bided his time, waiting patiently for something, for someone, to walk out the tent's entrance. Earlier that day, while strolling through the attractions, Smith had spotted a small crowd gathered around a man. His name was Clubfoot Hall, and he stood behind a small folding table where he captivated his audience with a simple game. Participants from the crowd watched carefully as Clubfoot hid a pea under one of three shells. Then they tracked its location as he quickly shuffled them around the table. The players placed bets on which shell the pea lay beneath. If they were right, they'd win Clubfoot's money. If they lost, he'd take theirs. When Smith approached the table himself, he laid down a couple of dollars, followed the pea and made his call. But when Clubfoot lifted the shell, there was nothing beneath it. Determined to win, Smith put down a $5 bill for a second game and another. Soon. He was cleaned out, a month's wages gone in under half an hour. The young man was astounded. Knowing he'd been tricked, he was determined to get answers. So he'd waited. And as the circus workers packed up their wares, Smith eventually spotted the con man leaving the tent and followed him. But Clubfoot was no fool. This wasn't the first time a disgruntled Mark accosted him after a show. Sensing someone behind him, he turned on Smith with an unflinching gaze. Clubfoot let the kid know that in this game there were no takebacks. But Smith assured him that he didn't want his money. He'd lost fair and square. What he did want was to learn how the trick worked. Whether Clubfoot revealed his secret to Smith is unknown, but soon the young man would master the shell game along with many other rackets. And in less than a decade, he would become the frontier's most successful con man, a Wild West legend better known as Soapy Smith. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast Original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we'll meet Jefferson Randolph Soapy Smith. A notorious con artist whose 18 year career became the subject of American frontier law. Today, we'll hear about the events that inspired Soapy to pursue a life of scams, the racket that earned him his name, and the beginning of the con man's criminal empire. Next week, we'll explore what led Soapy to take his operations from Denver to the far north territory of the Klondike in Skagway, Alaska. And finally, We'll recount the violent events that led to his untimely end. Soapy Smith was a charismatic gangster and con man who became a major figure in the law of the American West. Using revenue from a variety of rackets, he established crooked gambling halls, saloons and brothels across Colorado and Alaska enjoyed by criminals and townspeople alike. Smith was known for the two sides of his larger-than-life personality, the charitable businessman, beloved by his community, and the vicious outlaw and racketeer, hated by lawmen and the press. But during his final years, Smith ultimately proved himself to be one of the most notable kingpins of the American frontier. If his life had gone differently, Jeff Smith might have found success as a lawyer or politician, perhaps even as a minister or actor. He was intelligent, charismatic, and a gifted performer blessed with a striking presence and a melodious voice. But as fate had it, Smith was led to put his skills to more questionable use. Born in Coweta County, Georgia in 1860, Jefferson Randolph Smith Jr. was the eldest of four children and the scion of a proud Southern family. His great-grandfather was a decorated military man who had served as a captain in the American Revolution and owned an impressive amount of land. According to biographers Frank C. Robertson and Beth K. Harris, the Smith family was an old and illustrious one. For generations after the revolution, they enjoyed a level of wealth and education that most Americans didn't have access to. Robertson and Harris write that Smith's father, Jefferson Randolph, Sr., was a lawyer and among the more erudite of his generation. His grandfather was even a member of Georgia's state legislature. In fact, the Smith family as a whole was a cultured lot. Smith himself grew up reciting passages from Shakespeare and scripture, developing a knack for oratory. According to his cousin Edwin, Smith was a veritable prodigy with the world at his fingertips. But soon, all that would change. The Civil War, and specifically Sherman's march, devastated the Smith family's fortunes. In 1876, when Smith was about 16, the family left Georgia under financial pressure. They moved to Round Rock, Texas, where land was cheap and his father believed he could revive his career as a lawyer. But this was never the case. Smith's father was afflicted with alcoholism, and though he lived into his 80s, his drunkenness made him useless both at work and at home. Smith's father's drinking problem may give us a clue as to what led Smith to a life of crime. According to criminologist Joan McCord, researchers found a correlation between paternal alcoholism and criminal behavior in sons. McCord explains that this may be due to bad socializing environments. Many children of alcoholics become witnesses or victim to aggression, often sparked by addicted parents. Though we don't know the details of Smith's home life at the time, his father's alcoholism suggests that Smith most likely grew up in such an environment. But while Smith's relationship with his father may have been wrought with stress and hardship, Smith adored his mother, Emily, and enjoyed a strong bond with her. If his father's neglect laid the groundwork for a life of crime, his love for his mother may have instilled in him the desire to look after others. In 1877, when Smith was just 16, Emily passed away, leaving the teenager alone with his alcoholic father and three younger siblings. Jeff Sr.'s drinking only grew worse after his wife's death, and his legal practice was sinking. Smith found himself having to shoulder the burden of providing for his family— He took on a string of odd jobs and hocked goods at a general store before going to work doing on-the-street advertising for a local hotel. Travellers arriving at the train station were greeted by the charming young man steering them to the only first-class hotel in Round Rock. But it wasn't long until the teenager was bitten by the desire to roam. So, in 1878, 18-year-old Smith left home and set out with his friend, Joe Simmons, to drive cattle on the Chisholm Trail. The trail started in Texas and ended in Kansas by way of Oklahoma. And though its distance only stretched a few states, the trip could take two to three months to complete. In that time, Smith honed his saddle skills and became quick with a six-shooter. The teenager passed the long evenings on the prairie practicing card handling and sleight of hand. And soon, Smith showed a certain talent for gaming the game. After hearing that card sharps would mark cards to fix their decks, Smith began nicking his own with his fingernail in casual rounds of poker with Joe Simmons. His friend never caught wise, and so, over the many weeks on the trail, Smith became quite the player. But though these tricks were just a hobby at the time, everything changed when Smith met the shell game master Clubfoot Hall at a traveling circus. After Clubfoot took him for a ride, Jeff Smith was penniless. But the month's wages he lost were nothing compared to the insight he gained. He saw that there was little point in spending his time steering cattle when so much more could be made by steering men. Smith gave up cow handling and plied his new trade in earnest. He travelled to Fort Worth, Texas, where he met other like-minded young men and put together a gang. They were a rogues' gallery of hustlers and heavies with colourful names like Ned Banjo Parker and Fatty Gray Morris and each had his own preferred method for parting fools from their money. Smith and his gang travelled widely in the early days. Photographs and newspaper reports show him surfacing as far-ranging as New York City and Portland, Oregon. He amassed an impressive portfolio of swindles on the road, rigging games of chance, playing three-card Monty and selling fake gems. But his most profitable early con was always the shell game. While the presentation of a shell game required real skill, the strategy for luring in victims was simple. First, Smith would plant a few of his cronies in the crowd and allow them to win a few rounds, making it appear to be a fair shot. Then he would use these seemingly easy victories to reel in a mark. The victim, confused that the game suddenly seemed a lot trickier than it had been a moment ago, would pony up until he lost his nerve or ran out of cash. Then Smith and his accomplices would repeat the pattern with another mark. Smith had a preternatural knack for the ebb and flow of the game. When he decided that a particular crowd had been tapped, he'd simply pretend to lose his winnings to one of his men and move on. He would make a show of it, throwing up his hands and lamenting that he wouldn't be able to pay for a room that night. Then he would meet up elsewhere with his gang to divvy up the loot. The act ensured that no one would accost him after the game. None of his victims had any reason to try and get their money back from a seemingly broke swindler. The shell game was reliable for a quick buck and it would remain in Smith's arsenal throughout his career. But he would soon develop another racket that promised a much larger haul. This con would not only make Jeff Smith a mint, it would give him the infamous nickname he'd carry with him throughout his life. Coming up, Jefferson Randolph Smith creates his signature scam and becomes the legendary Soapy Smith.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime
1: Fitness.
0: Then answer a few short questions about mom and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
1: Now, back to the story. After his fateful meeting with a shell game artist in 1879, 19-year-old Jeff Smith left his cowboy days behind him and became a traveling trickster. He plied his trade in Texas and recruited a trusted gang of scammers. Together, they traveled the country raking in cash with three-card Monty, the shell game, and other cons. Around 1880, Smith and his gang made their way to Denver, Colorado. He was likely attracted to Colorado by its burgeoning cities and general lawlessness. Prospectors and settlers flooded the state so quickly, law enforcement struggled to keep up. By 1880, Denver was one of the largest cities in the West. Yet even as the population rose toward 40,000, the police force numbered only a few dozen. With little to fear from the law and no shortage of marks to dupe, Denver was a con man's dream. But it was perhaps the time, more than the location, that was instrumental to Smith's success. Ever since the California gold rush 30 years earlier, the prospecting spirit of the frontier drove hundreds of thousands of Americans west, hoping to strike it rich. Few ever did, but the money they brought with them fueled the economy, creating a cascade of boomtowns across the region. As authors Frank Chester Robertson and Beth K. Harris write in their biography of Smith, the lure of quick money made every adventurer a potential sucker. Gambling dens, saloons, and burlesque theatres all prospered, along with small-time swindles like Jeff Smith's Shell Game. By 1882, 21-year-old Smith was working his cons on the sidewalks and storefronts of 17th Street, the center of Denver's thriving gambling trade. With the help of his growing gang, he plied a variety of -of sleight-of-hand tricks and other scams. But the most lucrative was as clean and simple as a bar of soap. The Prize Soap Racket would become the most infamous con of Smith's storied career, both because of its novelty and his ingenious methods. Smith would first show up at a busy street corner in a stately-looking wagon pulled by two handsome steeds. As a curious crowd assembled, he would open the back of the cart to reveal a container filled with bars of soap. Then he would begin his spiel. Smith captured his audience's attention with an ode to the salutary prospects of soap, especially his own formulation, which he called sapoleon. He claimed that sapoleon was concocted in his own laboratory, the fruit of years of research, and manufactured in his own factory. In truth, they were cheap bars that could be bought from any dime store, but his customers were unlikely to know the difference. Smith then insulted the gathering crowd's poor hygiene declaring his zeal for the gospel of cleanliness My mission in life is to get people to use soap and to get you to do it I am willing to pay you for it He would then fold greenbacks worth $1 $5 10 20 50 even $100 into some of the papers as he wrapped the soap without fail A curious customer, one of Smith's shills, would then approach, pay his dollar and open his bar of soap. Sure enough, tucked into the packaging would be a crisp $50 bill. The young man would whoop and holler, there really was money to be won. Without fail, customers would crowd around, eager to get in on the action. They would buy up as many bars as they could happily paying the inflated price of a single bar worth over $30 today. To heighten the stakes, Smith would then declare that the $100 bill had not yet been claimed. People would begin bidding for the remaining soap in a frenzy, paying upwards of $5 or $10 a bar. The scam often raked in what would be thousands of dollars today. And in the span of just an hour or so, Smith and his men could walk away rich men. Soon, it became a staple in his bag of cons. And in all his years of doing the racket, he never gave away a single $100 bill. Through sleight of hand, he separated the money-wrapped bars from the rest, distributing them to his own employees in the crowd without anyone the wiser. Smith always operated under the facade of a legitimate salesman, even going as far as to procure a license to sell. But sometimes, the con was exposed, and Smith was arrested more than once. On one occasion, when the officer was depositing Smith at the town jail, they forgot the con man's first name. Instead, the policeman wrote in the ledger, Soapy Smith, and the nickname stuck. By the end of 1885, 25-year-old Jeff Smith, now widely known as Soapy, was a fixture of Denver's nightlife. When he wasn't working, he could be found in the city's many saloons and music halls. And as fate would have it, it's there that he fell in love with a pretty young singer named Mary Noonan. When they met, Mary had a six-week engagement in town at the Palace Theatre, and Soapy returned several times to see her perform. After one of her shows, a man became too forward with Mary at the bar and Soapy intervened. As Mary recalled years later, Soapy gallantly protected her, beating the other man away with a cane, though some witnesses claimed he used the butt of a revolver. Regardless, Mary was impressed. And after just a two-month courtship, The couple were married. By the time Soapy met Mary, he was already a wealthy man. The lucrative prize soap racket had become a cornerstone of his growing enterprises in Denver. And though he wasn't the only con artist to pull the stunt, he was the most successful. This was in large part due to his elaborate and convincing presentation, While other members of his gang were masters of disguise who could easily change their appearance to fool a mark or evade capture, Soapy took a different approach. Rather than blending in, he wanted to stand out. His most prominent feature was a distinctive black beard, which he grew in his early 20s to make himself appear older and more authoritative. To truly look the part of a business magnate, he wore sharp black suits, accented by expensive cravats, and a watch hanging from a heavy gold chain. It did the trick, and both his allies and his adversaries described him as an unscrupulous entrepreneur through and through. But those who knew Soapy personally had a very different take on the con artist. To them, He was a loving, respectable husband to a genteel young wife. And surprisingly, a generous philanthropist. Many citizens in Denver knew Soapy for his charitable work. One man, who remembered seeing him hand out turkeys at Christmas time, described him as a kind of local Robin Hood. These folks no doubt knew how Soapy made his money, but were more impressed by what he did with it. Soapy kept these various aspects of his identity separate. The criminal boss, the caring husband, and the charitable benefactor. But he immersed himself fully in each of the roles he played. This performative dimension of Soapy's personality could explain what made his cons so convincing. Because in order to adequately dazzle his marks, he first had to understand them. According to psychologists Talia R. Goldstein and Paul Bloom, acting can train us to better grasp other people's perspectives. They describe a reciprocal relationship between performance and social cognition. If exercised, it can strengthen theory of mind, the ability to understand the thoughts, feelings, and intentions of others. Goldstein and Bloom explain that a year of acting training actually increases an individual's capacity for empathy. And Soapy, who had been reciting Shakespeare since he was a child, was no stranger to the craft. As opposed to many other con artists who display narcissistic or even sociopathic tendencies, Soapy Smith's strengths stemmed from the opposite empathy. He may have been able to shake down his marks so well. Because he had an uncanny ability to see things from their perspective. Like a great actor, he was able to get inside other people's heads. And it paid off. Through the rest of the 1880s, Soapy Smith continued to play his various roles and grew more successful in each. Shortly after their union, Mary gave birth to the first of their children. In 1888, 27-year-old Soapy opened the Tivoli Saloon and Gambling Hall. It was a massively profitable venture, filled with both straight and crooked offerings. Downstairs, customers could have a drink at the bar, while upstairs, they may be cheated out of their money in a game of poker. But alcohol and gambling weren't the only forms of entertainment available. Tivoli's stage was a convenient front for the sex work provided by its female employees. Men could watch young women dance, and if they offered more for a private encounter, they were unlikely to be turned down. Soapy also used Tivoli to gain sway with local law enforcement. Denver's police officers had long been known to drink at the saloons for free while on duty. But at Tivoli, Soapy supplemented the liquor with cash. With a shot of whiskey and a stack of greenbacks, every officer was encouraged to turn a blind eye to the club's backroom activities. But his influence didn't end with the police. Soapy endeared himself to the city's political leaders by aiding in their electoral efforts, going so far as to commit voter fraud. In one election, a single member of the soap gang allegedly cast nearly 300 votes for a candidate Soapy promised to help elect. Not even the local Christian ministry was free from his charms. Parson Tom Uzel of the People's Tabernacle Church once encountered the con artist while giving a tour of the city to a woman named Isadora Leon. As Mrs. Leon later recalled, the parson introduced Soapy as the most infamous confidence man in America, and my friend. Soapy managed to keep in the good graces of Denver's leaders in part by leaving the locals alone. He targeted outsiders almost exclusively, no matter how famous. In 1888, Australian prize fighter Ruby Bob Fitzsimmons came to Denver. At the time, he was the reigning middleweight champion of the world and was flush with cash from his winnings in a recent fight. While out looking for a good time, Ruby Bob was invited by a man named Colin P. Huntington to visit Soapy's office. Once the boxer arrived, he soon found himself drawn into a poker game with the Con Man. He was on a roll at first, but before long, the cards turned against him. In the end, Soapy cleaned him out, and Ruby Bob lost what would amount to over $150,000 today. Ruby Bob was furious, but Mr. Huntington was extremely apologetic that he'd ever introduced him to the game. So, to calm the boxer's rage, he arranged to meet him at the train station, where he promised to repay him his money in full. And to express his deep regrets, he even offered to provide him with a selection of valuable diamonds. The thing was, there was no man named Colin P. Huntington. It was a role played by the so-called Reverend John L. Bowers, a member of Soapy's gang. And when Ruby Bob and his wife arrived at the station to meet Bowers, the kind, diamond-toting businessman was nowhere to be found. Overhearing the perplexed couple, the stationkeeper knew exactly what had occurred and kindly explained the situation to the boxer and his wife. They had been taken in by Soapy Smith and his crew. He saw it all the time. Ruby Bob was, once again, beside himself with anger. But the stationkeeper warned him Don't get excited, mister. It won't do you any good. That gang is too powerful. But while Soapy enjoyed his unchecked control over Denver's criminal underworld for a time, conflicts inevitably arose. And in a single summer, a pair of violent encounters threatened to knock Soapy Smith from his throne. Coming up, Soapy's antics put him in the crosshairs of the Denver press, and his skills with a six-shooter are put to the test. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But detectives would soon discover. Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
1: I am just praying to God this is a sick
0: joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy. But discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at travelwyoming.com.
1: Now back to the story. By the close of the 1880s, Soapy Smith was already the veritable king of the Denver underworld. His gambling hall was thriving, and his rackets on the street still turned a tidy profit. Locals loved him, politicians depended on him, and the police were more than happy to leave him alone. By many accounts, Soapy was actually a community benefactor, as famous for his acts of generosity as he was for his cons. Whatever money he didn't lose gambling, he would donate to various causes and he was more than happy to give the odd hundred to an acquaintance who was hard up. He was even known to tip newspaper boys 10 or $20, several hundred dollars today, for fetching him the paper. But even if his generosity was sincere, it also may have been a tool to help maintain his sway in Denver and to keep its citizens beholden to him. Essentially, Soapy was exploiting the norm of reciprocity, a phenomenon that suggests people feel the need to repay in kind when someone does them a favor. This principle is well known by salespeople. Give a customer a small gift, a pen or a piece of candy, and they'll feel pressured to pay you back with their business. But its use goes well beyond the world of sales. In a 2010 article, psychologists Mark Whatley, J. Matthew Webster, Richard H. Smith, and Adele Rhodes lay out just how internalized the norm of reciprocity is. They conclude that even small favors produce greater compliance with requests. But this increase in compliance was found to be more pronounced in public settings than in private ones. According to early research by pioneering social psychologist Solomon Ash, this is because individuals receive major social benefits for abiding by societal norms. And they may incur serious costs, possibly even exclusion from the group, for defying them. This is no doubt why Soapy was so eager to advertise his generosity. He depended upon compliance from police, politicians, and the public so he broadcast the favours he was doing for them. By triggering the norm of reciprocity, he could ensure their allegiance. But not every challenge to Soapy's leadership could be solved with gifts. Sometimes, it had to be squashed with violence. In July of 1889, when Soapy was 28, the Soap Gang descended on Logan Park, a popular destination for short excursions just outside of Denver. It was opening day for the summer season, and members of Soapy's gang planned to capitalize on the event to rake in a particularly large haul. His gang set up all the usual swindles, a shell game, three-card Monty, and of course, the prize soap racket and to loosen the attendee's pockets, they set up kegs of beer and made sure that water was nowhere to be found. By evening, the increasingly drunken crowd grew unruly. A fight broke out between a member of the public and one of Soapy's men, and the violence quickly escalated into a riot. One man even had his jaw sliced open with a hatchet. The Rocky Mountain News published a scathing account of the incident. The article described how the gang had swindled the crowd before inciting them to violence and named Soapy as the master of ceremonies of the bloody event. Soapy took all this in stride, but was bothered by the potential fallout the article may mean for his family. So he took his wife Mary and their children, Jeff Jr. and Eva, on a vacation to Idaho Springs while things cooled down in Denver. But while the Smiths were away, another piece in the Rocky Mountain news ratcheted up the tension. This article brought Soapy's wife and children into the fray. It revealed their whereabouts, writing, Soapy's family is stopping at Idaho Springs. It is good to be Soapy's family just now, but maybe not so good after a while. This hit a nerve. For the last three years, Soapy had made a point of keeping his family insulated from his professional affairs. They lived in a peaceful residential neighborhood that seemed a world apart from the saloons and gambling dens of 17th Street. It was one thing to assail his business practices. But invoking his family, in tones that sounded threatening no less, was beyond the pale. When the article was published, Mary Smith was immediately snubbed by polite society in Idaho Springs. Even the owner of the hotel where they were staying asked the Smiths to leave, citing the scandalous article. But Soapy wasn't going to take this insult lying down. Later, he told a journalist, I did not mind so much being called a thief, I am used to it but no man can slur my family. On a summer evening in 1889, Soapy showed up at the offices of the Rocky Mountain News carrying a revolver, a small knife, and a smilish rattan cane. One of his strong arm men, the massive Banjo Parker, accompanied him. They were there to see the paper's owner, Colonel John Arkins. The two men waited on the sidewalk outside of the paper's offices. When Arkins finally stepped out of the building, at first, he only saw the imposing figure of Banjo Parker. A moment later, Soapy emerged from behind his companion and strode toward Arkins, calling, Oh, John! Soapy shoved Arkins, but instead of going for his gun or the knife, he raised the cane and clubbed the newsman over the head. Arkin's fell to the ground and Soapy, according to witnesses, struck him several more times. The assault reportedly fractured Arkin's skull and nearly killed him. Afterward, Soapy sent a peace offering. He had an easy chair sent to Arkin's office, but the newsman refused the gift. Instead. Soapy was arrested and jailed. His bail was set to an amount totaling nearly $30,000 today. But a business associate quickly paid for his release. In regard to the incident, the Rocky Mountain News reflected, Soapy has surely got to the end of his metaphorical rope this time. He will reach the end of the other kind of rope in due season. But their prediction was nothing more than wishful thinking. In the days following the assault, Soapy launched a vigorous public relations campaign. He spoke to multiple papers justifying his actions as a defense of his family's good name. And it wasn't a hard case to make. Soapy's subsequent trial for the attack lasted only one day. And in the end, he was exonerated by his victim's own testimony. Arkins stated that he and Soapy had spoken prior to his paper's publication of the offending article and that they had come to an agreement. He admitted to promising that his paper would stop attacking Soapy, a promise he had broken. Why Arkins testified to this is unclear. He may have had a guilty conscience, or he wished to diminish the controversy surrounding his paper. However, it's also very likely that Soapy bribed or threatened him. Whatever the reason for Arkin's change of heart, the charges were reduced and Soapy was released without further ado. His only punishment was to forfeit the money from his bond, which he'd already posted. It seemed Soapy won the war against the press. But all too soon, he found himself in the fray once again, and the stakes went beyond his family's good name. This time, his very life was at risk. Mere weeks after his run-in with Arkins, Soapy and his gang decided to take their scams on the road to Pocatello, Idaho. The sleepy mountain town seemed promising, but as it turned out, Soapy's reputation preceded him. Waiting at the station for Soapy were a pair of gunslingers who worked for a local gangster named Ringcone Kid Kelly. It isn't clear how the Rincone Kid caught wind of Soapy's arrival, but he clearly didn't like the big city bunko man encroaching on his territory. As Soapy's train pulled into the station, the sound of a pistol shot rang out. The window beside him shattered. Soapy said later that the bullet came close enough to ruffle his moustache. He drew his own gun and returned fire, and managed to shoot one of the Ringtone Kid's men in the thigh. Some railroad workers tried to subdue Soapy, but he managed to escape and retreated to a neighboring town. But the next day, possibly seeking revenge, he returned to Pocatello and was arrested. Soapy stood trial for the shooting but was quickly acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. Rather than try his luck further in Idaho, he wised up and took the first train back to Denver. By the end of the 19th century, his network in Denver was as expansive as ever and his scams and saloon were raking in profits. In spite of his recent scuffles and continued agitation from the press, his place at the top of the city's food chain was nearly unquestioned. But Soapy wanted more. The close call in Idaho made him realize that his empire's reach was limited. And he couldn't be content until he was the undisputed king of the American frontier. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Soapy Smith. We'll hear about Soapy's move to the boomtown of Creed, Colorado, his battle to reclaim his throne in Denver, and ultimately the violent showdown that brought his reign to an end for more information on soapy smith amongst the many sources we used we found alias soapy smith the life and death of a scoundrel by jeff smith extremely helpful to our research you can find all episode of con artists and all other podcast originals for free on spotify not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parkhouse Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Stephen Davies, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Greg Beam, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.